0: Hey everyone, life is all about giving and receiving with one another. That's why I love to give my time and energy to bring this show and make it available to you. If you ever feel like you want to give back, you can actually do so by buying me a coffee. No, I'm serious. If you go to www.buymeacoffee.com humansaredivine humans are divine, you can buy me a coffee and I appreciate it. And I say thank you ahead of time. Thanks a lot. Hey, what's up? This is the first Humans Are Divine episode where I'm not recording from my home studio. I am down the street, five minutes away, at Angel City Zen Center, and I'm with the head of practice, Dave Cuomo. He's a Zen priest and a former chef. What's up, Dave?
1: Hi, Jesse.
0: Thanks for letting me come over and uh hang out with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming over. Letting me play with my uh my gear, my mics.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is this is way better than my setup. So I just got myself at Best Buy. I'm sure you got your legitimate stuff somewhere <laughs> I, I got them on amazon <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: that's not a plug that's a that's an admission of guilt <laughs> for sure for sure
0: um haven't done an episode in a while so i'm excited to to do that do this with you uh we hung out last week we had a great time um i think there's like a natural chemistry there so excited to talk with you about all things zen buddhism and Soto buddhism i've Sodism. heard of the
1: zen buddhism you speak of <laughs> yes
0: uh, and it's funny cause I've had a few Buddhist guests. I've had a couple of Theravada people and, uh, um, a Vajrayana person. And so you're like the first Zen person. So no pressure.
1: No, oh, no pressure. No, I'll represent. I'm a, I'm a fiercely not taking it too seriously sectarian. Like if, if anyone wants to like argue like different traditions, I'll like, I'll do Dharma combat all day long. <laughs> But I know it doesn't matter at all. It's just like kind of fun sport. And like, I actually, I do care. Like, I have reasons. You know, when you commit your life to something, you have reasons for what you're doing. In the back of your head, you're like, you know, this is just some shit that you like, right? You know, it's not like, it's not that important. It's like arguing canoes and kayaks. Like, it's very fun to have those passionate debates on which is better, but they're both... Going downstream.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that is very Zen of you to say, right? I and mean, when you get into the ideas of like absolute and relative truth, this is just like Split a your game. mind and, into yeah. not
1: knowing why you agree with what you agree with and not really caring, but also fully, get, yes, that's exactly Zen. <laughs>
0: totally. Um, so, I mean, Buddhism, man, people think about Buddhism. They think about, like we said, Theravada. They think about Pure Land or Shinto or this or that. What makes, and again, I think there's, uh, you know, obviously common things in all of them um, and truths, but like what makes Zen stand out?
1: Zen's funny. Brad always makes the joke. Brad's the um, the founding teacher here. And he's Brad Warner. Yeah, Brad Warner. Um, he. Wait, what was the question? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the question is, uh, what makes Zen Buddhism distinct, or what's it about compared to other?
1: Oh yeah, the, the Shambhala has their dictionary of Buddhism and Zen, um, and a lot of tra- it always surprised me. A lot of traditions, kind of like make zen like the red-headed stepchild like barely in the club like that's not really buddhism i had a Theravadan monk one time come to the old center uh he just like w- i was out back like smoking a cigarette with my girlfriend <laughs> like as the resident monk this is not a good look i'm out back smoking a cigarette <laughs> with my girlfriend um i'm allowed to have a girlfriend in this tradition it's it's it's, it's weird rules but anyway so this Theravadan monk walks back there and starts kind of like grilling me on stuff and we're talking dharma but it seems kind of like he's kind of i don't even know this guy where he came from but, and then I finally went on to ask him about their meditation practices. And he goes, oh, I can only share those with monks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I think I
0: just got told. <laughs> that sounds like skillful beans, huh? Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyways, so what makes us distinct? What our line is, I mean, that's why they see us, is like not quite doing Buddhism in the same way. Our line is that the reason they're all doing it wrong, again, wink, wink, everyone's doing it great, um, is that... <laughs> It's this silly, arcane, 8th century debate between what they called sudden and gradual enlightenment. Um, it sounds really silly in, in theory, but I think it actually has some immediate practice consequences, this debate. Um, and it's, I think, still a valid choice for anybody to make up to this day how you want to practice it. And it's, um, are you going to tell the whole truth and only the truth and practice only what is ultimately true right now as your practice? Or are you going to take it in baby steps with some training wheels to acclimate, you know, a limited human understanding of the world and like this self you've known the whole time? Let it kind of like slowly make its way to a platform where it can understand what we're really trying to talk about when we talk about the great whatever, you know, the big it. Yeah. And Zen's line has been, and there was, there was a debate back in the 8th century between in, in Tibet and in China, um, the Council of Losses actually gets recorded when Tibet invited a bunch of Chinese monks and then some Indian monks over debate, should we be a sudden or a gradual enlightenment country? Um, and uh, they claim that the, sudden, that the sudden people lost. China claims that they won, but all we know is that all the Chinese monks were then kicked out of Tibet, and Tibet's been a gradual enlightenment um, situation ever since. And China had the opposite debate and went the other way and said, no, we are sudden only. But so it's about, are, are you going to make your practice just going all the way into the deep end, no apologies, no... Um, Skillful means explanations. Like, skillful means is kind of something we don't really consider here. Like, everything we do and say and practice should line up with the only and the ultimate heart of it, ultimate truth of it. Whereas other schools seem much more willing to um, lead you in gently and kindly. You know, which is not to say that I'm um, again, I'm not saying our way is better, but that is our line for why it that's why that's in China, why they considered it superior because it's only the truth. Um, and that's baby steps. But I think there's very good argument to be made that like, you know, maybe giving some people that actually like help you feel better and do better in the meantime. <laughs> while you grapple with the great big ultimate truth yeah. might be a compassionate way of going about it, too. So that's that's that way I would put it.
0: Yeah, honestly, that was and I, I don't just say these things. That was one of that was one of the greatest. explanations i've heard especially like like practicing the direct truth now in every moment yeah that's awesome i think that really inspires me
1: it's really hard though if you that's why zen literature is so bonkers because it's impossible to express whatever that is in in words because just like when i say you know i'm a a fierce sectarian but i know it's all bs Mm -hmm. um that's not a logical thing to hold in your mind so how are we supposed to put this down on paper what we actually think and believe, you know? Yeah. Um how do you teach that? You don't <laughs>
0: I imagine it being like, you know, like being thrown into another country with a foreign language and you're like, speak your language now, get it all now. And that's kind of maybe a little bit of what Zen's like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a perfect example because then it's like, no, you already know what they're trying to say because you're human and you both have hearts and the same wants and needs. So if you look into your own heart right now and see your confusion as a foreigner in a country, you're gonna feel their awkwardness too, you know? Yeah. And they're annoy a French person's annoyance at you for not speaking French. Sorry, French, that's you know, I've been there. It is <laughs> it's partially a true stereotype, is an expression of your awkwardness there. So yeah, that's a perfect example.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so when you talk about this 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 big debate where people talk about grudge gradual for a sudden, is this pre Bodhidharma or is this talking about um, those two monks that were arguing? Oh what's what's the guy? Um, the, the mirror wiping thing.
1: Oh, that yeah, that's a platform suture. That's post Bodhidharma Dharma, right. yep. and that that would be where you could say China had the debate. They didn't like like t- whereas Tibet, the king invited the people and had a formal debate mm-hmm. with large consequences. China didn't quite do it like that. There were two rival schools, and what's funny about that? That's why I love Zen history because it's some really good philosophy <clears throat> and some really great results from some really dubious characters. <laughs> <laughs> So what appears, with a cynical reading of Zen history, there is a monk named Shen Hui in um, the years 710 to 740 to 750, maybe 60, who wanted to make his name by tearing down and yelling at all of the prominent Zen monks of his day. And so he said, and and northern China was where all the imperial capital was, and all the big wigs of Chinese society were in the north, and he was... Coming from the South. well, he's Actually, he was born and trained in the North. He just happened to be in the South a little while. Anyway, so he says, <laughs> All of you Northerners are corrupt, teaching a corrupt, gradual, inferior enlightenment. Only I have the true, sudden enlightenment of my teacher, Huanang. Um And that's what's recorded in the platform suture, is Huynang's supposed um, poetry contest with Shu, who was the real acknowledged at that time, patriarch of Zen in China, who was the Northern School's imperially sanctioned national teacher, and then, so Shen Hui comes out a generation later and says, no, 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 there's nobody, um, Hui Nong, you've never heard of from the South. He was the real guy. He really got it. And here's how. And that's the um, poetry contest in the Platform Sutra is what's recorded.
0: Yeah. Can we go into that a little bit? Because I think that kind of goes into like w- what how Zen differs from either regular meditation or Buddhist, Buddhist yeah, yeah, Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll just tell you from what I understand and you can correct me. So
1: I might get a book off the shelf. Go yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh,
0: so it was, who wrote the Platform again? Hui Huan- 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 Neng?
1: So no, the, it wasn't written by Huanong. It's Supposedly, a talk given by Huinong during an ordination ceremony is the the frame story. We'll call it. It was recorded by a disciple of his, of which we have no other account except for his name at the end of this sutra.
0: Got it. So I'm gonna go get, give my two second butchered version. You can you can yeah, fix yeah. it all. So I know that the the one guy he said that like meditation is about like your mind is like a mirror, and you want to keep cleaning the mirror. And then the other guy was like, there is no mirror. Right? Something like that, right? Yeah,
1: it's, yeah that's, that's basically. I'll read it to you, but you just said for it sure, yeah. um, perfectly. Uh, the first guy, Shen Shu's inferior poem. <laughs> it's, it's really, these things get so cartoony. Like, they really write this guy out to be kind of an idiot. <laughs> yeah. You feel bad because Shen Shu is actually a great guy. Like, he really does yeah, history. Like, yeah. this guy did so much for Zen. I mean, he was the first one. The Empress Wu invited him to the capital, sat him. Um, I don't remember all the rules of uh, Chinese feng shui at the time. Anyway, she sat him in the place of honor facing, I think, north or south. Whatever way she's supposed to be facing, she sat him there, got down below the platform, and did prostrations to him. This, An empress or an emperor had never done this to a, a priest before. So, like, and, and this, this acknowledged, like Zen is a preeminent school in China. So anyway, he was a great guy in actual history. And then in this platform suture, he just comes off like a real idiot and a jerk. <laughs> and it's so sad. Anyway, so this is the poem they have him uh, giving... Uh, the body is a Bodhi tree. The mind is like a standing mirror. Always try to keep it clean. Don't let it gather dust. Which, yes, it's a metaphor for doing your daily practice and slowly purifying your karma towards some distant enlightenment. You right, know? right. Right? Or actually, that's a superficial... That is how it's characterized. If you actually read it closely, it doesn't actually say that. Sorry, before I give the rebuttal, no, I'm going to defend Shen shu. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what it actually says is, always try to keep it clean, don't let it gather dust. It's a present moment practice. It's not actually saying, if you clean it so that someday it will reflect and be enlightened, mm. it's saying our daily constant practice is not letting it gather dust. So right. it is saying that we are doing the practice right here, right now, only it already is pure. Um, anyway, but it is characterized as saying, no, we're going to clean it to get enlightened. Right. And then Huanong comes back with... Bodhi doesn't have any trees. The mirror doesn't have a stand. Our brood of nature is forever pure. Where do you get this dust? <laughs> right?
0: Boom! He sounds like a Facebook troll or something.
1: I know, right? Um, it's always, as if you ever want to, z- when there's an argument, you just say, like somebody says, like, I don't know, you just say, what, whatever you're talking about. Right, like, exactly. What minds, you know, right. it's like, oh, good, good for you, dude. <laughs> yeah.
0: Zen douchebaggery.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a, I have books and books full of it. <laughs> Some of them very ancient. Um yeah. Oh, this one rhymes. The mind is the Bodhi tree, the body is the mirror stand. The mirror itself is so clean, dust has no place to land. I like when they rhyme. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that's the idea. Is that you're already perfectly pure, so why? What, what is this practice you think you're doing? Which, as much as I want to defend Shenshu, Shu, I love that answer. Right, right. It's the opposite of original sin. It's like the whole idea is, you know, re- being raised Catholic on a guilt complex. Where, you know, my mom will still tell me to this day, no, no, if you don't keep control, you're going to do bad things, Mm -hmm, you know? And I think I still believe this deep down somewhere. That's why I like Zen so much, because Zen's always telling me, no, when you let go, you have no reason not to be a good person, you know? Right. All you have to do is just be yourself and pay attention, and the the beauty will shine forth. That's a lovely message.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, totally. And it, 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 you know, like the mirror wiping, yeah, it does remind you of like a religious practice like said you're scared of your flesh or the devil right. in you or whatever to keep it keep it under control so i totally hear that yeah um, diligent
1: cleaning of who you are as a human does it does break my heart somehow as a practice
0: right if anything it seems like what we need to clean is the lie that we need to clean anything
1: that's 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 on the shelf yeah. <laughs> that's what we do but then, but then you see why why zen literature gets so weird because if you say that if you're cleaning the design you're still doing the same right old thing. right and so is that what we're doing yes do we say that out loud no <laughs> no we don't
0: <laughs> yeah um and may it makes me think too of i have it on the tip of my tongue um okay it'll come back to me we'll, we'll skip to that later but Okay, so uh, so Zen, direct experience. Now, within Zen, there's, there's different brands as well, right? There's mm-hmm. Soto Zen and mm-hmm. uh, Rinzai, Rinzai Zen, Zen are the main ones. I'm sure there's some offshoots as well.
1: I think there's one other one that survives, and I don't know much about them, but they're pretty tiny in Japan only. In China, where it all comes from, Linji School, which is the Rinzai school, is the only surviving school at this point. Wow. Um, the fact that Soto Zen exists at all is kind of a weird quirk of history that I'm grateful for.
0: <laughs> you want to explain the quirk?
1: Um, yeah, well, basically, Dogen, who is our, the founding monk of Japanese Soto Zen, happened to be in China when everything but Rinzai Linji... Uh, sorry, Linji is a Chinese name, Rinzai is a Japanese name. I'll just mm-hmm. call it Rinzai from now on. When Rinzai was, dying, was taking over everything, and everything was being co-opted by the Rinzai school, there were still a few Soto places left and... He actually, he did a tour of all the big temples and all the main teachers in China. And he was, he was kind of a snot face, like a lot of these people. <laughs> I love Dogen. Sorry, I'm not trying to denigrate them. He's a great guy. But also he was kind of snotty and pretentious about his Zen. And he said that every teacher he met was corrupt and BS, except for this <laughs> one guy. He found the one guy in China who was worth listening to, Tendo Nyojo, And he was a, a, a Soto guy. And so he brings Soto back to Japan. And that's where it survived. So then Linji co-opted everything in China and um, so did it survive in one branch in Japan, where in Japan it became they called it farmer Zen. It was the popular Zen of the lower classes, and whereas Rinzai Linji Zen um, also went over to Japan, and that became the Japan of the aristocracy. If you want to think like Bushido mm. and samurai Zen and all like the, most most of the famous monks from the, about the year twelve hundred to about the year 1800 or, or 1900 even, uh, from Japan were all the Rinzai sects. It was the upper-class, noble, aristocratic um, school, much more heady, intellectual. Um, Soto was kind of the the common people's thing. But so it was much bigger, but kind of less, I don't know, less academic.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Um, wh- When was Rinzai around and when when was Dogen around? Because um, they weren't contemporaries, were they?
1: No, no, no. So Linji, who actually w- was... So, Soto is the Kaodong school. Ma- found, they would say founded by Dongshan, um, who was about a contemporary of Linji or pretty close thereabouts. Okay. And that was the year 850 or so. Yeah. Um, back in China, these splits are all old. There were five main branches of Zen in China and only two left when Dogen got there, really.
0: And now just one left. Linji Renzi. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so what makes uh, Soto different from Rinzai?
1: I think I've given, I've given like four or five talks on this.
0: I think it's fascinating.
1: Um, it's, the main difference is in the directness, especially the student teacher relationships and the direct push for enlightenment. Um, Rinzai Zen, you can see why it was, why the aristocrats liked it. Um, because what they do is they have these days, but ever since about the year 1600 and beforehand shades of it. They have a koan curriculum that take you through, and the koan curriculum works where your teacher gives you a koan, and if you haven't done koans, they're little, very short flash stories that can. They're not riddles, but there's a case that you have to answer for. Um, the best translation I've heard is if you, you've translated it as um, the r- word technically means public case, but case study, um, and it's kind of a joke on where in Song Dynasty China you had lawyers doing case studies to pass their bar exams for Song, to be a Song Dynasty lawyer in China, and so monks had. Koans, public cases, case studies, they had to pass, I'm doing air quotes, um, in order to become monks. The joke is, how do you, you, you can't quite prove your ultimate enlightenment the way you can prove that you know the law. And so that's why the koans are so weird. And so what happens is your teacher gives you a case and you have to then demonstrate an answer. And how they do that, I can't tell you. They can't tell you. It's something weird between you and the teacher that happens in the room. But they get like a curriculum of these things that goes like, there's like 600 you might do over the course of 20 years until you finally pass the whole thing. Um and your teacher will tell you exactly how you're doing. They'll be like, Yeah, no, you pass or no, you don't pass. You know, so it's a very guided experience in that way. And the whole time there is a big focus on breaking your mind in an enlightenment experience. You know, this is kind of the the ideal. They're going to push you to have that experience. And I, I I don't think it's direct correlation, but there is some idea that answering the koan involves demonstrating um, at least much of the time something of this experience to them that you have a personal witness of this or personal experience of this that you can demonstrate for them. Um, so that's the main difference is the, the focus on Satori and Kensho experiences, which are the words for enlightenment experiences. Um, whereas in Soto, it's a much more a DIY self-guided affair. Um, a good Soto teacher will never verify an enlightenment experience for you. Um, The answer will come back. Yeah, weird stuff happens in Zazen. (laughs) you know. (laughs) Go back to sitting. And I've been told that the main point of a teacher in Soto Zen is just to, when you do start having crazy experiences and thinking you saw Jesus or thinking you're enlightened, they'll tell you to shut up and go sit down. That's like their entire main role is to keep you sitting and focus on what you're doing right now and not getting hung up on mystical woo-woo stuff. Um, And in that way, their, their goal is to make space for you to have your own experience And to be, I guess, kind of an encouraging coach to a point... I mean, they give the talks and they'll answer your questions, but their answers are usually kind of terse and not all that helpful or explanatory. Um, The writings are pretty dense and not all that helpful. (laughs) If you've read any Dogen, you know what I'm talking about, you know? Um, So, again, it's it's kind of... I mean, some might say it's the more Zen experience in that it's throwing you in the deep end to only have your experience. As Brad says... um, if you're trying to, f- if the point of all this is to figure out who and what you ultimately are, no one knows that but you. So, any wow. teacher who's going to try to verify and tell you that they know what you are or who you are is lying to you. And so, why would you trust that, you know? And so, our thing is get used to that the whole way through. Um, from what yeah. I understand of Rinzai Zen, that is the ultimate. Um, joke at the end is that the teacher isn't hasn't really been... The teacher's been playing teacher this whole time, but they were never your teacher. It was always you. It takes like right. 20 years to get that joke.
0: <laughs> and so were we're like, we're not going to pretend. <laughs> so I totally agree with that, but I also want to challenge it just for fun. But well, I mean, like, do don't we all have Buddha nature? So in one sense, aren't we all Buddha nature? So I can share what I know about Buddha nature with you because we have the same identity in that sense.
1: So they talk about this in... I mean, on a fundamental level, level, yes, of course, like this right here. I mean, even the idea that you're sharing your Buddha nature with me would be a misnomer, right? Mm-hmm. Like Buddha nature just is us having this conversation yeah, already totally. here. Like, yeah. what what is there to share? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and who is sharing it? See if we can do this all day. Right. <laughs> um, which I know it always sounds so snotty and silly, but what I'm actually saying is like our ground of being is already so connected that there's never been a moment of separation between us. So how could this not be are ultimately boundless love. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. nice ways to say it too. We like yeah. to say it's naughty and funny, but the ultimate, the, the real truth of it is like, nothing is missing, you know? Right. And I can say, I'm glad you're here, but even that's like, to say, I'm glad you're here, misses the point that like, you're here. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But they do talk about kind of like, so we say that, There is no enlightenment. Zazen itself, sitting Zazen your first time is already enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Um, But then some teachers will be like, okay, well, there's second enlightenment. (laughs) Um, They will talk about the transmission. What Dharma transmission often comes from is a moment of recognition between student and teacher when um, you see the teacher, the teacher sees you. It's kind of described in mystical terms, and there's this like, yeah, yeah, we see each other on that level now. Kind of like when
0: Buddha had the flower, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. That was the first transmission. But uh, the story goes that um this is where zen supposedly starts again the story was written in like the 800s but <laughs> let's just pretend yeah. um buddha is supposed to be giving a dharma talk and he just holds up a flower and Mahakasyapa, who's his most senior disciple um he smiles right yeah so i think yeah, I think yeah so. he smiles and then buddha says you you get it you know nicer <laughs> terms than that but and that was the first transmission yeah he got the flower
0: yeah that idea fascinates me and it's funny because and I, I, I know Brad talked about it, so I know, I assume you guys believe that here, but the idea that you got to do your own practice, but there's something about that transmission that you need from a, a realized teacher. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you can go out on your own in the woods and then come out getting Zen unless someone who understood Zen gave it to you, or what, I mean, am I describing it wrong? Or
1: No, no, that, that is how it's said. I'll just speak from my own experience, because I'm kind of cantankerous, and I came to Zen in weird ways. And, like, so my first few years w- working with teachers was I would see, like, Brad once every two years when he come through Nashville on a retreat. Uh, my actual teacher in uh, Nashville where I was, lived in Atlanta. I didn't have my first docus on one-on-one practice discussion with him for, like, three years. And then I would see him, like, once every year or two. You know what I mean? So, like, a teacher was never a big part of my practice. And there's always a lot of song drama with the teacher in Atlanta. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah. And so I never really, like, thought to, like, rely my practice on these teachers. Mm-hmm. So even by the time I came out here and I'm working full-time with a teacher with Brad... I, at that point, been doing Zen for like, what, 10, 10 or more years, and so it didn't really occur to me to be like, oh, now I'm working with the teachers, so now it's that kind of Zen. Like, it was, to me, my experience is, it is really important to do it with a group and with a community, and part of a community has to have hierarchies and roles. And so I do a lot of practice working within these roles, you know, like I did some very brief air force training and a very small stint. In the military. <laughs> Long story. Don't ask. Um, but they talked a lot about followership and they really showed you how true followership is just as important and just as, um, had just as much will and agency as leadership does mm. to think that followership is beneath leadership is a true misnomer. Like I thought it was very Zen of the military to figure this out and to train yeah. their officers like this. Um, and so that's kind of how I see the student-teacher relationship now. Like, by working with my teacher, I am supporting them. And they support me in return by giving me the opportunity to work with a teacher. So we might do some teacher-student-y things. I might ask a question, get an answer. But, like, what we're talking about is so ir- – not irrelevant, but it's, like, such a small part of the actual training and the practice that's happening. Um, to me, it's, like, functioning those relationships. And then that supports the community because I do think there's the – and again, not denigrating anybody else's practice, but there's a lot of talk in the old things about the Prateka Buddha. Do you know this this word?
0: Oh, no. tell me.
1: Um, the Prateka Buddha is the self-enlightened one. And if you read any old scriptures, even from Theravada stuff, the classical Buddhism through Mahayana, they all talk about these self-enlightened Pateka Buddhas in kind of derogatory terms. Like, yeah, they got enlightened, but they're just proteka buddhas. Like, you know, it's <laughs> like, they're self-enlightened. It's not the same thing as working with the Sangha. And people are like, hey, why, why would you say that? Like, let people do their thing, man. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But their point is that doing it on your own for yourself is missing half of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think you're going to enlighten yourself and be happy and go live off in the woods and be in bliss, then you're not recognizing that enlightenment is a connection to all of humanity. So you can't be cut off from community. And so this container of a Zen space becomes a place to... Practice it in community and support other people's practice through your own practice. And so that requires hierarchies, students and teachers and things like that. So it'd be a misnomer to say that I need a teacher to teach me Zen or use my teacher to teach me Zen. But it's incredibly important that I work with a teacher and in a community that has those functions and structures and understand my role as empty and totally sincere at the same time.
0: Yeah, great answer. I totally agree with all of that. Um, but one specific thing within that that I'm curious about still and maybe I was originally asking is sorry. No, 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 not at all. That was was all great. No, I'm not trying to like be like that. Like, whatever. (laughs) but like, have you ever had a moment, your Buddha flower moment where a teacher did a gesture or said something, or even if it was a Buddhist book where you, and you had a Satori experience.
1: That's a good question. I'm, I'm intrigued by these, by the descriptions and accounts of these experiences. Um, I've had many experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I've had and I've had some that, just like I think the other day we talked about reincarnation, right? Yeah. Did we talk about that? Probably. Maybe it was with somebody else. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. We've all um, t- we've all talked about it. <laughs> yeah. But like where there's descriptions and old accounts of having past life uh, memories during deep meditation, right? Right. Sure. Have I sat there deep in meditation and had a quick visualization of being a rodent dying on the uh, forest floor while big lizards thunder around me? <laughs> yes, I have seen that in meditation. Did I say, "Oh, that was my past life," um, and I'm going to own that as that experience? No, I see a lot of crazy stuff in <laughs> You know what I mean? I let it go like everything else. That's again, that's my Soto practice: has to let it go and keep sitting. Yeah. Um, and so, when it comes to Satori or Kensho experiences, have I? can I line up my experiences with things I've read in books? Yeah, I can do that. Um, but I think it hasn't been that helpful. Whenever I talk about it in those terms, I haven't had that help to share that recognition with other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I say I was out on the road um, by myself and the sky cracked open and I felt one love with everything and I was a laughing, crying baby and my not was <laughs> the same after that. <laughs> it doesn't connect me to other people when I say that, you yeah. know? And so I don't Great say answer. it much. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> um, awesome. The one time I did say something like that, and actually, okay, no, this is a good moment because after I gave this talk where I said something like that about a different experience, um, Brad came up and was like, that was, that was a well-done talk. And we kind of had like a little moment. And I was like, oh, that's nice. I think that was like my first like sincere validation from my teacher I've ever gotten. Yeah. But what I had done was I, carried, I had to describe an experience and then, in very naked terms, describe the fallout not being what I expected, and the disillusionment afterwards, and learning that experiences weren't the point, because, you know, if a state, sometimes after an experience like that, like, a state of grace can go for quite a while, like, mm-hmm. maybe, like, six to 12 months, or just, like, life is easy, you can yeah. feel like you're pretty light, you got all figured out, and I'll see, I'll have That's discussions so with people who are in that space, and it's great, but I'm always, like, don't get too attached, because, like, everything comes and goes, like, I've been doing this for a long time, right. I've had many experiences, yeah. and like, that does not last. And that's what I said in that talk. I described it in kind of a little bit poetic, trying to give just enough to then be like undercut and be like, and here's where I learned disillusionment from that experience. And that's what Brad was like. Thank you for giving that talk, you know, yeah. not for the experience itself, but for the um, knowing what it is and what it is not.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I love that. Um, you know, even in Christian mysticism, like like St. John of the Cross, who's probably one of the greatest, like... He also heavily speaks about like ignoring ignoring supernatural experiences. Mm. You know, cuz in, in in the Catholic Church it's like I saw an angel or the virgin mary or all of these things and he's like those things will get in the way of your you know, he would call enlightenment union with god, but that, that, that's how he would word it, you know. It's so interesting to see how these glorious things can be a, a roadblock.
1: Yeah, no, they and they really can be. Um and that's written all over Zen too. There's one of my favorite in the commentary to instructions for the cook, Dogen's great comment. It's like a very enlightenmenty practice discussion about how to work in a kitchen yeah (laughs) but he's uh, in the commentary uchiyama is like if you see a bodhisattva flying over your pot beat it on the head with your (laughs) spoon and go back to work you know (laughs) it's like you know see that buddha on the road kill the buddha kind of a situation right 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 (laughs)
0: um i wanted to read you a quote and just see like the zen perspective on this um so personally i mean i've I've been in zen uh for eight years now i mean not as deep as you being a priest and everything just self-taught and and practicing Mm -hmm. um and then lately i've been more i've been getting into tibetan buddhism and Mm -hmm. vajrayana and stuff and um one of the things that i feel like it probably isn't zen because i don't know i definitely don't know even a a little bit of zen compared to the whole vastness of it but as i I, as i uh, one thing that i've noticed in tibetan buddhism is this idea about like heavy emphasis on compassion for people Mm -hmm. um on devotion to the buddha yeah and sometimes maybe it's about the the buddha and your teacher or whatever but i mean ultimately what they're trying to say is the buddha and everybody and there's something about like this like heart place and so Mm -hmm. i'm just curious what zen would have to say about that so uh this this quote is from tuku urjan rinpoche and he says uh A famous quote says, so I'm quoting a quote in a quote, whatever. A famous quote says, in the moment of love, the nature of emptiness dawns nakedly. So that's the quote that he quoted. And then he said, both compassion and devotion are included in the love mentioned here. Short moments of recognition, I guess of your Buddha nature or of the Zen moment, repeated many times and supported by devotion and compassion are called training. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: I like that at the end, because he does kind of undercut it. Because I don't know if you hear the word training as kind of like a laugh winky thing. Like sure. I hear it like, yeah, that's just training, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, cause what it, what, it, to me, like the end rings as, oh, yeah, yeah. Enlightenment experiences are just training for the real thing. Yeah. That's a lovely way to put it. Yeah. Um, my first reaction, to the first half, it was kind of snotty, Ho- Hoi Nong style. like um. <laughs> well, wait, re- re- sure, yeah, yeah, again. yeah.
0: Um, so he says, a famous quote says, in the moment of love, the nature of emptiness dawns nakedly.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So the moment of love, emptiness dawns. Mm-hmm. Um, how can emptiness dawn? Sure, <laughs> you know I mean? right, yeah. And it already is love. So like, what is a moment of love when the whole universe is just love is a word for what, for reality. I've heard this before, like love is reality. You know sure, what I mean? Sure, okay, yeah. Um, and for us to experience love is just an experience of reality. Right, right, really. yeah, okay. And um, so when we say emptiness dawns, it's like, well, no, we notice it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, 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 totally. But that's why I like the end of it, because he does kind of allude to that by being, so that's like our, this is like the whole conundrum. We get stuck on this conundrum in Zen too. Mm-hmm. Like Dogen's famous question was, If we're already also perfectly enlightened, if that's what we're saying, then Mm -hmm. why do I have to practice? (laughs) Why I just at Zazen in the the morning at 6 a.m.? For Dogen, it was 3 a.m. Yeah. If um, I'm already enlightened. Good question, Dogen. And I feel like that's kind of the conundrum we, we set up there, you know? Like, why do our human brains not get it? And yet we are constantly telling ourselves here in Soto Zen that not getting it is also getting it. Right. You know, is that a helpful thing to hear? I think it is, but I can see how it might not be for everybody, you know? Sure,
0: sure. Oh, can I read another one? You inspired me. Absolutely. And (laughs) I think this this one's also very Zen. This is from Dilgo Kinse Rinpoche. It's from a book called Primordial Primordial Purity. Um, He says... So in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they would call the Zen experience like the view, mm-hmm. like, which is just like Buddha in right view, right? Part of the path, mm-hmm. right? Just seeing things the right way. I think like right what Kensho means is like oh, for sure. a, a,
1: a glimpse of something. There think, you go. There you go.
0: Um, so that he says, mm-hmm. what must we do to develop this confidence in the view? We must understand that day and night throughout the entire dimension of our lives— there is no difference between the meditation experience and the post meditation experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that reminds me of what you were saying. It's like, we're trying to realize something, but even us trying to realize it is what we're trying to realize. Cause well, Zen is one continuity that right. You see, you see where I'm trying to go with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's where I wonder about, we get on something like technique, like let's discuss teaching techniques, you know, like sure. what actually is helpful for Americans to hear in the 21st century Cause if that's the proposition, are they, are we gonna keep practicing? Because one thing we know for certain, after twenty five hundred years of doing this, you gotta practice. Like right. for whatever reason, whatever poach you wanna put on it, um, gotta do your zazen, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or whatever your um, sex brand of zazen mm-hmm. is. But <clears throat> the more you can forget about that while you continue doing it, the better. Mm. Like the less you can dwell on it or think about it or think about it as helping you or leading you to something the better. The more enlightenment experiences you can have while not considering them anything special, <laughs> the better. And the more depressions and bad states you go, at like, least in my opinion, you go sure. through be, and, and reminding yourself this too, this too, the better. Like, I think that's kind of become my mantra at this point is like, and I think like, it's a weird trick because since I feel like, I think I feel more confident in Zen than some people around here sometimes and I don't think it's because I'm any more versed or experienced or I'm going any deeper than people. I just think I've, taught myself to always say this too and so when they're like ah oh, zazen's so hard and boring I don't want to sit zazen and I'm like well yeah but like that's what we signed up for right and so when I have um boring zazen I just at the end, I grade it as perfect. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so if I'm talking in a discussion, I'll be like, "No, I'm having great salsan all the time." And they're like, "How do you having great salsan?" <laughs> because afterwards, I label it perfect. It's that simple. It's just yeah. the label you put on it afterwards. But it does start to change things when you label everything. I think that's like, if I could give one technique to the tradition, it might be like. Don't forget to label everything you do as perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know, even when it, especially when it sucks, you know. Yeah. Just say this is perfect too, and see and see what that does because it does slowly unseep in. So if I've had the experience of perfection, you know, like whoa, whoa, it really is all perfect, you know. Hmm. Um. And if I've had the experience of like, oh God, I just can't function. I don't want to do this anymore, and I labeled that perfect. Um. That perfectness does start to live in everything like Mm. I can't now forget like I can get really bummed (laughs) like don't get me wrong yeah I can have a real hard time I've always struggled with mental health and I still do but the voice or the piece of my heart that says this is perfect is just louder and louder every time Mm -hmm. you know and that might be something people would label progress but don't tell the Zen teachers
0: (laughs) yeah yeah no that's really good actually I like I like these I like these quotes from Dave Cuomo. <laughs> um have you ever read that book or maybe I'm actually in the library here at the Zen Center. Uh I think it's called Cultivating the Empty Fields.
1: Do I have that book? I know the title, but I don't know anything about it.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, for sure. It's just like I don't even know that I forget the guy's name. Um it's just his like Zen poetry of you know, Zen nonsense that's supposed to, you know, mm-hmm. help you keep going in the practice. Um, I, f- I found it very, very comforting. I was just curious if you
1: had heard of it. Mm-mm, I forget.
0: Yeah. I bought a book. <laughs> what about uh, Hakuin?
1: Oh, oh Hakuin. He's Rinzai.
0: Okay. Right. <clears throat> he, he, he was like a Rinzai <clears throat> revivalist, right? Like it was kind of dying away, and I heard he kind of brought it back.
1: Yeah. Hakuin, I believe, is the one who I have a real, not, not hate, like a love-hate thing with Hakuin. Um, He did... I think he's the one who invented the current Cohen curriculum used by the Rinzai school. Oh. I think what they're doing now is all Hawkwain's reformation of it. Um, and when I read him, he is refreshingly direct and honest about what they're doing and how it works. Like, he is telling you... It does sound much more like, here's how you do it and what you're going to get out of it and why you should do it. You know, he's very encouraging in that way, whereas Soto is always so around the back door, we're not going to tell you or promise you mm-hmm. anything. Um, which I love and hate about Soto. And I love and worry about Hakuin that he's like promising candy flowers and enlightenment, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Um, or like really pushing you like a coach, like push harder and you'll get there, you know? Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. not that blunt, but like it's much more like that than the stuff that we read. Um, but what I'm doing, so I do our Instagram here and I, I do these like doodles. Yeah. It used to be daily. Now it's like close to weekly. Those are weekly. great by the way, yeah. <laughs> um, but my favorite ones to do are always, I, I just... Whenever I can trace a Hakuin <laughs> painting, it's my favorite. His lines are so loopy and they're so fun. <laughs> I just delight in copying Hakuin's paintings whenever possible. I yeah. just line up and trace them directly. It's like, these lines are too perfect. I can't. I, yeah, I can't yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't improve on these lines.
0: <laughs> he, uh, I know. And now, I'm now curious about this. I know if you were to Google his name and look up quotes and stuff. Not that I have done that. But one, one of his lines I guess he's famous for is talking about like great doubt mm-hmm. and um, how that's just as important, if not more than belief and faith. Well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
1: What's- yeah. So what I was taught was I was originally taught that um, one needs to. I think it was actually the Shambhala people taught me you need to have effort, faith, and doubt in equal measure. And I loved that when I heard it. So it was like a three three legged table. You take mm-hmm. out one of the one of those three. And when I'm sitting in zazen, I feel like you can almost watch it happen as an engine. Like effort is just like sitting down and trying, and doubt is curiosity, right? Mm. Doubt is what is this. You know, mm. and then faith is this is it. And that's what keeps you sitting. Like, how do you stay present with not knowing what you're doing? Because, um, again, in Zen, it's an undirected, unfocused meditation. Well, it's, it's focused, but it's not a concentration practice. Yeah. So you're really not, not sure what you're supposed to be doing or what's happening. So how do you keep doing that? And that is you keep asking and then you keep accepting. And that um, it feels like a rotary engine at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it just kind of becomes one thing. And that's where it breaks down. Um, that's my personal understanding of it. I was also taught by the... So the White Plum people are a combination of Soto and Rinzai. They do both. Okay. And they told me that Koan practice and the Rinzai style is for people who suffer from excessive doubt um, because you have the teacher and the Koans to keep validating you and keep you going. So if you doubt too much in the practice, you're going to need somebody to kind of like pull you along. Yeah. Too much doubt. If you suffer from excessive faith, <laughs> as they put it, then you do Soto style where you can just sit Shikintaza because the idea that you're going to sit there for 20 years being confused until you have some understanding of what this was all for, (laughs) and then someone tells you that's not it either, go back and sit down. (laughs) That takes a lot of faith. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, Oh, I I think one thing I just want to say for our listeners, um, and you can totally chime in and say it better than me, but, you know, I mean, we're saying all of these, like, things about Zen, and maybe it it can, like, lose you. And I just want, I just feel like inspired to remind everybody that ultimately like, and I think, I think this is a subtle thing. Zen is just to sit, sit down and stare at the wall and just be there. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. We say beginners only here. And it's, it's funny with like the, the farther I go in it and the more leadershipy roles that I take on, um, it's easy to feel like, you know, something or like you're, you've learned something, but it's really not the thing. Like yeah. it really is just your experience. Um, so, I feel bad about that Partaka Buddha put down thing because, like, I think I, I learned Zen before I knew what Zen was. You know what I mean? Sure. I think that's why I've always liked Zen so much because it was a description of something that, like, I needed, I wanted to have honed, I wanted a community for. So, like, just go out and, like, my first question before I even really understood what Buddhism was was just, like, what the crap is this? You know, I sat there <laughs> staring at a highway for, like, eight hours of time I, um, by myself in a car on, on, when I was on tour, um, just staring at the road, feeling like, because I just want to know what my mind was like, what is this experience of me?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, since a little, as I was a little kid, like these are the things they beat out of your head as you get older. Like those are dumb kid questions. Right. But I was like, you know what? I got a lot of time to kill. This is Nevada. There's nothing happening right now. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to study my brain and figure out what the crap I am. And that's all you're ever doing. Um,
0: right. Yeah, because I mean, like, the example you gave of your parents or whatever, or society, like they want to tell you, like your function is who you are. You're a worker, you're a husband, you're whatever. Yeah. But like, those are just roles that we play. Like when those are, when those are not around, like who are we really? That is crazy to think about, you know?
1: Right. And it changes a lot to like approach life like that. Yeah. Like, I feel like some of the gift that we get from this is like, and I, I only saw Our Town, I think when I was a little kid in, in grade school, but like, I remember the, just the, remember Our Town, the play? No um oh a, yeah yeah of course yeah the narrator was a uh-huh. dead a dead woman who came back to life and was just like wandering around her town being like oh they're doing the threshing <laughs> and oh i miss the the weeds you know this kind of stuff but like that's kind of what we get to give you right like if you question your life like that like wait a minute no i know i have to go to work today but like what am i and what is work and why and yeah. you really break that down right you might go in and be like oh, I love powdered creamer, and Doug being a jerk and stealing my lunch is like, oh, that's so human, ah, you know, and it's like, <laughs> that's a fun way to see life.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, like, these these roles that we make into our, quote, inherent identities, like, they're always going to fail us, and so it's like, when they do, what do you what do? You do? That's and the I, thing. And it seems like that's, unfortunately, I'm, I'm speaking about myself, too, it's like, it's it's only when, like, we fail in our roles that we turn to something like Buddhism or spirituality or meditation or what have you.
1: That's the thing it's like um, my whole thing if I have a, a thesis is disillusionment I think it's the best thing for you and I'm sorry that's the way it works <laughs> yeah. but like if things are going well in your life and this is in all the old mythologies too um, it's the whole the, the there's the God realm. And I've heard it said that if you're reborn as a god, the only place you get reborn in is hell, because there's no way to do being a god right. Hmm. Like in the Buddhist pantheon, gods have lifespans too; they're very long. Um, But (laughs) your life is so blissful, you have so much like power and wonder and delight that you never think to question. Your existence a reality, and therefore you have to be ignorant. You can't be compassionate, and you must go to hell afterwards. Like it's like a, it's kind of like a law of the universe.
0: Right, because they're they're like so blissed out in their divinity that yeah. Right. Yeah,
1: and so if it, to me it's a metaphor for in this life, if you don't have just enough suffering to make you wake up and pay attention, um, you're probably not going to get it. I think we can I'm not gonna make this a political thing or a class thing. Like, no, yeah, yeah. But you yeah. might be able to look around and see some corollaries to what they're sure. talking about. <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean this gets
0: into Jesus blessed are the poor. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. But I like it also too because it's um you know, Buddhism's kind of a rough message when it's saying like give up all your material possessions. Not all of them, but like material wealth and happiness will never make it for you. Buddha's middle way was, like, way less. I mean, his his middle way of, like, just enough but not too much was, like, three robes living in the woods. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it's not quite what we would call middle way. But it's always, you know, find your own middle way. Right. But there's the caveat that um, the hell realms are too, there's too much suffering for enlightenment or to actually move up to. Mm. Um, and which is to say, like, Having enough is important, you know? Right. You never look at somebody who's really needy or really struggling or born into poverty or living on the streets and be like, material wealth isn't the answer. You're already living it, you know what I mean? It's right, like, right. you need to feel some stability and some comfort and some sense of well-being to um, to go there. And so I think that's it's important. They're always saying like, Just enough, but not too much. You want just enough pain and suffering. (laughs) Right. Um, But not so much to completely break you down and beat you to where you just actually give up, you know?
0: Right, right. And if you don't know what the hell we're talking about, in Buddhism, there's, like, different classes of beings that you might reincarnate (laughs) into. You can be, like, a demon, or you can be a god, or you can be an animal, and... I don't know the rest of them. But there's, <laughs> there's like eight of them. So the, you know, one thing that you hear about in Buddhism is that if we are born a human in the middle of all, the, mm-hmm. all these beings, we're actually very fortunate. And we should take advantage of this opportunity that we're human to study the Dharma and practice it and stuff. And because, like, like you said, we're right in the middle. We're not too, we're not too blissed out. We're not too much in hell. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Isn't I look at my life and I'm like. Really just nailed that. You know, like, I feel like my life has been like oddly hard in ways that it shouldn't, didn't need to have been. I'm like, why yeah. is my life so hard? But like, I also had a lot of good setups and advantages and privileges. And I think they really did like just set me up with just enough to give me like some solid core of like, I know what okay feels like. And I have some sense that okay is normal and, and yeah. good. Um, but also just enough BS <laughs> <laughs> that didn't need to happen. It's like, why? Yeah. <laughs> to make me like question why?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you ever read uh, Bodhidharma? Um, yeah, I have read Bodhidharma. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. neat. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you, are you... I'm, I'm sure you are, but like, what, what do you think of his four practices? Um, don't seek. Um, um remind me. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, don't seek. Uh, go through conditions kind of like evenly. Like don't get too happy about things or too mm-hmm. bummed out about things. Um, practice the Dharma. I think he just means like the paramitas and stuff. And right. then the first one was... Oh yeah, but yeah.
1: Hang on, hang on. <laughs> Four entrances and, three, and two principles.
0: Right, 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 right. It's like one
1: page. Yeah, yeah. Here it yeah. is. that's why it's great. Um, first, is what I love about Bodhidharma is that oh yeah, suffering and justice.
0: Yeah, don't complain about when you, when you go through shit.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what he says. Yeah, these are rough. These are <laughs> exactly these are some tough love lessons. <laughs> Yeah, listen to this, and and see if you get angry, America. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is his four all-inclusive practices. First, suffer injustice. So for everybody out there, like, I know most of us who might hang out with people like me um, are going to be, like, what they would call social justice warriors, like, probably come from more that sector of society than anything else, Um, and yet the first thing is, suffer injustice! (laughs) It's a good thing, you know? (laughs) Yay! So Real
0: quick, what's interesting is uh, in the New Testament scripture, St. Paul, he literally says this. He says, if somebody sues you, just let them sue you. Let them throw you in jail. Like, what are you? why are you fighting this? <laughs> I love that. But anyways.
1: It's really, it, it's, it makes you invincible if you can actually get down with that, right? Yeah. Then nobody can actually hurt you. Right. Um, second, adapting to conditions. So again, instead of going out there trying to make the world a better place, he's saying, so I'm going to make this sound bad before I say why it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so instead of trying to make the world a better place, the instruction is to adapt to the way it is. Third, seek nothing. <laughs> so if you're out there voting for Bernie Sanders, I voted for Bernie Sanders um, to give you healthcare and free college tuition. They're saying seek nothing. Uh, fourth, practice the Dharma. That's just good advice. That's right, how, right. How could right, you right. not? That was my son answer. To that anyway, the funny thing about Bodhi Dharma, I've always thought is. We don't know if he actually wrote this or not. Right. What we do have, because people debate if he was a historical character. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of research on this, and I will, I will argue to the death that he was a real character, and he probably doesn't live up to all of his legends. You know, he's known as, if you don't know familiar with the Bodhi Dharma story, he's like he cut tough, off great. his eyelids. Yeah, oh, go ahead. he tore off his eyelids because <laughs> he kept falling asleep during zazen because he meditated for nine years straight. Is what they say, and then his eyelids grew into tea leaves. That's how he got tea with caffeine uh, to keep oh. you awake while zazen really cute story in china <laughs> <laughs> way to go on the kids' stories there um but what we actually do have is a letter written by his direct student referring to what he taught him
0: uh, um right. and is those
1: it, are that data and does exist so it's like okay buried armor existed this, and is if, the,
0: this is the guy that cut off his arm
1: supposedly yes supposedly okay uh, we know who he is he probably actually lost his arm in a in a war he, he's probably a soldier um this is how these stories happen, right? It's like, tel- yeah, it's like telephone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One-armed one vet comes to Bodhidharma and they say, oh, he tore up his arm to get the <laughs> Dharma. It's like, well, sure, kids. <laughs> Whatever keeps you sitting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what he really did do in practice, like, so Bodhidharma comes from the Yogacara tradition, uh, in Indian um, school of Buddhism. He's famous for bringing uh, Zen stream from India to China is what he's famous for. And the Yogacara tradition, the Lankvotara Sutra, he supposedly studied is this incredibly dense 500-page sutra in which the I've heard this uh, description of it? The premise was that since the truth isn't categorizable and can't be organized, we're not going to bother to categorize or organize our sutra. <laughs> so it's just 500 oh pages of truth vomiting at you, and it's just yeah. like, what are you doing, Lankavatara sutra?
0: <laughs> it's like a beatnik kind of writing or something. Yeah, yeah. and that's
1: what Bodhidharma brought to China. <clears throat> And the China are much like Americans. Whenever we get an- an annoyed at Americans for being like, I want my enlightenment now and fast and quick because I'm smarter than yeah. everybody that this came from, so I don't need to do all that study and stuff. The Chinese thought the same thing 1,500 years sure, ago. Yeah. Um, they were just as naughty as we are now. They thought they were the pinnacle of civilization. They yeah. were, to be fair, but they still thought it, which is funny. Um, and so they're like, give me the cliff notes. And so basically, if you read the letter that Huika a student, had that is verifiable... Um, it really is a two page boil down of a thousand years of Indian Buddhist tradition and that five hundred page Lankavatara Sutra is in those two pages that he passed on. Wow. And if you want to read it like these practices that he's telling you here is just a summary of five hundred years of Yogacara tradition. Yeah. <laughs> um
0: what, what is what is what are those books called? For dummies or whatever, you know. Yeah, Buddhism for Dummies, which yeah. I have on the shelf. I always yeah. give
1: I give bonus points to anybody who gives a Dharma talk here using Buddhism for Dummies. <laughs> which nobody has tried in like
0: three years and so who wait? Who writes those books? So it's like a legitimate like Buddhist, know. <laughs> you know. I always wonder that. It's like someone just goes on Google to make these books, you know.
1: I think I used it once effectively, so I, I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so actually about these things because these are these are great things. I am coming to Zen from a. You know, I don't know if I agree with this at this moment. Actually, this is funny. <laughs> well, because I got a therapist, right? My therapist keeps telling me that if I. You know, part of this is almost like a martyr syndrome, right? Suffer injustice. I can do that because it's good for me, right? But I would right. never want that for anybody else. Right? Yet my therapist keeps telling me that if I keep... <laughs> sorry to bring that in here. Yeah. But if I keep holding myself to a different... And Buddhism tells me this too. If I hold myself to a different standard than I hold other people to, if I want to have compassion for others but not for myself... Then I am missing the entire point. I'm just going to keep doing harm and attracting bad situations and creating bad situations, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, and I, I'm not, I, I'm not the expert anyway. But the way that I read that is that, you know, don't complain about. Um, unstoppable injustice or problems obviously like if i can avoid suffering i'm gonna do that i don't know about you dave but i'm right. gonna like you know whatever but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like there are things in life that no matter what we do life just gives us shit and i feel like those are the things that and i could be wrong that maybe he's saying like when that happens yeah you got you have to deal with it because it's not going away yeah i think that's completely, you know
1: <laughs> that is absolutely true yeah the first thing you can do is argue with what's happening to you like, this shouldn't be this way. I think that's where most problems happen. Even in politics, too. Sure. That was part the problem with activism, was like, things shouldn't be this way. And it's like, well, yeah, but you know what? You know what? Things are this way. And so right. maybe hating everybody who exists in that society isn't the answer. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and this is why it seems like when, which is, this is terrible that this happens, but the fact that, like you know death and it seems like grief is a great spiritual teacher because like death is one of the, the, the most unexplainable things it's like how why like how, you know this should not happen you know children should not be slaughtered or or whatever my daughter shouldn't have died but mm-hmm. it, it did happen and so it's like it forces us to deal with i don't even know what but
1: this is my biggest fear for humanity right now is that um because they're getting better and better at the science thing (laughs) yeah and they 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 sometimes sound like actually might unlock ways to stop cells from aging and dying
0: right if
1: they can actually make us immortal like i don't know how well that goes for us like we are not prepared for that like we're gonna be the god class yeah yeah right we're gonna have to if we're gonna have to get enlightened real fast (laughs) to handle this immortality (laughs) thing because like part of the way that society works right now is people with bad ideas slowly die off and we can kind of move on (laughs) sorry if that sounds rough that's what i see happening you know yeah um and so, if if we don't do that, then I'm not really sure how things are going to go for us. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I think you're right. Like embracing those kinds of suffering is. So that's why teaching Zen is hard, because the actual answer is I do completely agree with suffer and as especially in a present moment tense. You're right. Like when I had my appendix burst. Do I know how to do meditative techniques to manage pain? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, did I sit there in a the bathroom stall and watch my appendix burst and be like, all right, I trained for this. Here we go, Dharma, you know? Yep, I did that. When I got to the hospital, like, do you want the opiates? I was like, yes, give me the opiates. You know? I can manage this, but like, why would I bother? Yeah. Like, Let's do the drugs now. Yeah. Um, but- this is a powerful true practice and so the real truth is that when somebody comes here if you actually come here and you want to do Zen practice with us I would do you a disservice by trying to make it nice for you you know what I mean yeah by trying to make you because sitting with yourself for an hour in the morning every day or sitting a four-day retreat where you're just sitting and staring at whatever happens and it's uncomfortable and it's hard if I try to soften that blow through some like like, even, like, there's the rule you're supposed to not look people in the eye on retreat, you know? Mm. And, like, do I want to, like, give everybody a reassuring smile and a wink, and do I actually do it on retreat a little bit? Yeah, I do. But, like, every time <laughs> I do it, like, I know because I've trained by this for now, but, like, I'm doing a disservice, you mm. know, to let you sit with your stuff and go through it. That's, like, the only way I have learned anything in Zen was, like, nobody else was there. You know? Yeah. And nobody was there for me. Like, that sounds really rough, but that's kind of the way we train it. Yeah. Is that, I love how Copancino put it. He's like... He said, "Pound your life by your question makes me really rough. like just go on to it by yourself." But when you go crazy, before you go totally crazy, talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a safety net. Yeah, you know? right. Like I, I, so if I'm if I'm leading the retreat, I should not look you in the eye and give you a reassuring smile on the path. But if you're freaking out and you're like, "Can I talk?" Hundred percent there for you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, we're here to catch you before you fall and That's it gets good. weird. Um, but to let you go through as much as you can before we go do that for you is the that's the practice man,
0: so those who do, those who do want to practice with you, you want to share all about the, the center. What's that? You want to share all about the? the oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is I love the center. Yeah.
1: Uh, we are a small little center. I call it boutique. <laughs> 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 There's institutional Zen centers and they're great and they offer wonderful things and then you have like kind of independent centers like centers like us, um, where our whole I think our whole brand is Zen Cash. Like I love Zen. I love what they're teaching and. Uh, I feel at home with all the centers now, by now, but when I was first getting into it, walking into a place with like formal robes and clear mm-hmm. hierarchies and like ways to stand and talk and it's all just like very rigid and um, somebody's going to yell at you if you make the wrong turn in the <laughs> Zendo. Like that was off-putting to me. And so our whole thing here has always been like, we follow all the forms quietly where we need to, but like when you walk in here, you're not gonna notice any ancient thousand-year-old forms. You know what I mean? Like this we're is gonna, true. Yeah. We're gonna start five minutes late. We're gonna talk about <laughs> whatever um, before the sit, and it's all pretty chill, and I like that. <laughs> I think that's important. Um, so yeah, you can set us on Zoom. You can sit, if you go to the website aczc.org, you can email.
0: Maybe say that slower.
1: Sorry. You can you can go to the website aczc like org and the contact, you can email us and I'll send you the codes. We had Zoom bombers ones we had trolls, and so we had to start sending codes out. Um, And you can sit with us there or come join us in person. Um, Just as good, but even better. Just join us in person. And yeah, we have a good time. We do a lot of Zazen.
0: Last question. Thank you for that. And and I encourage you to, if you're not in LA, go on Zoom. If you're in LA, come out. Um, I do my best to make it, even though I'm terrible at that. um you have any book recommendations it could be a book that your all-time favorite it could be a book you recommended beginners for zen it could be what you're reading right now
1: um okay yeah the book I'll, I'll do a recommendations for beginners to zen yeah there's lots of those that's great but no the book I, you said i could recommend any book i want to mm-hmm. um i'm just a huge edgar carrot fan i just think he's fantastic he is a israeli writer um he's always been great he wrote a movie called risk cutters a love story which is, I've always said, it's my favorite movie. People are like, really, that movie? <laughs> <laughs> the premise of the movie, sorry, this is going too long. Um, the premise of the movie is it's, it's a comedy. It's a romantic comedy about the afterlife of suicides. Hmm. Um, so it's where you go and you kill yourself. And everything is just slightly crappier there like it's like the pizza kind of sucks <laughs> and the cars are kind of rusty and the cops don't really care. You know, it's like, it's like life. We're just kind of crappier. Yeah. And it's a love story set in the, the suicide world. And the main premise is that the, the, the the, the, the woman, she overdosed and she's like technicality. That wasn't technically a suicide. So she's looking for the people in charge so she can yeah. explain to them that she didn't really commit suicide. She should be allowed to get out of there. Yeah. Anyway, it's hilarious. He wrote that movie and he's always been a funny writer, but he did a book recently. He said he got into a car wreck where he had a real, like, not, you know, he's, he's Jewish, so it's not a come-to-Jesus moment, but he had a real come-to-Jesus moment mm-hmm. after this. And so his last book was just so beautifully dark, I think, in kind of like the ways we're talking about, where it's really embracing the kind of dark aspects of life in a new way for him. It's, like, less less goofy and more, like, getting there and finding—I'm not going to say the way out. Like, it's a beautiful book in, like, really striking ways with no easy answers. And I was just, like, severely impressed. And it's flash fiction, so it's like really short, quirky stories. So what's it called? Um, Sorry, Edgar Carrot, Fly Already.
0: Fly Already. Yeah.
1: Okay. I recommend that. Um, For beginning Zen books, of course, uh, our teacher, Brad Warner, he has Hardcore Zen is a, a great first book if you want like more of a kind of like fun, funky, personal memoir version. There's a lot of like real Dharma in there too, but it's also kind of like young punk kid going into Zen. It speaks to a lot of us who might come from a world more like that, you know? It's really, like, kind of lively and fresh like that. So I highly recommend that. And then his last book called Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, it's actually, it's a really sweet book. He wrote it as as his Zen 101 book, but he had a friend who died, and it was everything he wished he could have told him about life, the universe, and Zen is how he, so it's all Mm. these letters to his friend. He wrote it in very personal terms to that friend who's no longer here, what he would have said if he could have at the time. Um, so it's really sweet, but it's also his M101 manual. So it's really good as a...
0: This is like a recent... Yeah, this is his wow. last book. No, but like a recent death or...
1: Oh, um...
0: Not that it matters. In rest,
1: my but... mind, yes, but it was 2014.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: we, I have a series of talks. We were thinking about doing a book just on those talks. Like his friend died while he was on the road and he was giving talks um, on in retreats. And we're like, I know it's a sad situation, but like, dude, these are the best talks you've ever given. Like, he was Mm. raw and in the moment and just real and just like, he'll blog here at that point. He was just like, fuck it. I want some pizza. And I was like, (laughs) speak the truth. Yeah, (laughs) You know, so that's what the book comes out of.
0: Okay. I read most of Brad's books, but I got to get that one. I'm a little behind there. Well, Dave, thank you so much for hanging out, sharing your wisdom. There's a lot of zingers for me personally that I know (laughs) sit out and hit me. So I'm sure others will feel the same way. Uh, but yeah, Angel City Zen Center, check it out, uh, and just get around the song. I'll get around the community. Even if you don't know what the fuck we're talking about, just come (laughs) and you'll still enjoy. Trust me. Um, and, uh, yeah. All right, Dave. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks so much, Jesse. This was a blast.